Hey, everybody. Welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. Really cool guest today. I got Don Knotts on, Chief Operating Officer of the IPAA. Welcome in. So, look, Dan Knotts. Oh, did I say Don? Don. Hold on. We got to start that over. <laughs> the I've had way too much coffee today. It's not. It happens Because be, Have I been calling you Don all nope, day? Nope, no, I've been, been calling, calling me you Dan. Dan. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. We're going to start this over. That, that's happened since I was in kindergarten. It's a cruel trick by my parents, but we'll start, we'll start over. So, I'm the oldest of four boys. <laughs> right. And my mom used to call us Chuck J. Kenny, Bobby, whatever your name is. <laughs> Come here. All right. We'll start this over. Off we go. Off we go. I, I. Hey everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. In an embarrassing restart of this podcast in which I introduced my guest Dan Knotts as Don Knotts, here we are back, Dan Knotts. Chief Operating Officer of the IPAA. Welcome in. Chuck, thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. I appreciate it. You should have much better things to do. But anyway, <laughs> welcome to Houston. We're happy to be here. Thank you. Okay, so my mom's watching. And Sally, bless her soul, has remained incredibly naive and incredibly uneducated about my career, oil and gas and all. Will you tell her what the IPAA is? You bet. So the Independent Petroleum Association, IPAA, uh, uh, is a trade association based in Washington, D.C., um, dealing with federal issues. So we deal with Congress, we deal with the federal regulatory agencies, and we represent the independent producers across the country. Our have about 6,500 members, uh, and the, really what I like to say the most important thing is we represent uh, 34 states. So we have members in 34 states. So we have a broad range of representing those uh, small independent producers. Our average member size is still about 20 to 25 people. Um, we go up to the, uh, we represent uh, some of the publicly traded independents, so larger companies. But really what I always also say in Washington is we are the face of small business for uh, the oil and gas industry. Our guys are the ones that did uh, started the fracking revolution. Our guys, the, they're the true wildcatters who still get out there and, and take chances and, and, uh, and really explore. And, and, uh, and it's, uh, it's been a pleasure. I've been there now 20 years. Um, there's just so many issues going on at the federal level. Um, the one other thing, Chuck, that we don't do, we work closely with the states, but um, we don't get into state politics or get into you know, the issues in Texas or elsewhere at the state level. But certainly the federal Federal issues across the board is what IPAA does. I got you. So how does one become the chief operating officer at IPAA? What's your background? How did you get there? Uh, it's a great question. So I started my career up on Capitol Hill. I worked for a, a member of Congress who then eventually became a senator from Wyoming, a gentleman named Craig Thomas. I was eventually worked up to be his chief of staff. So a lot of work on the Hill, a lot of work with uh, energy issues, oil and gas issues, obviously from Wyoming. Um, energy, not only oil and gas, but coal, uranium, they're all, all those issues, a lot of public land issues. Um, then I was fortunate enough to, to move over to IPAA, uh, started working those issues on the federal side and the federal land side um, with my experience from uh, Wyoming. And then just uh, they were uh, either smart enough or dumb enough to keep me around. <laughs> so, so I became the COO uh, just, uh, just the last six months. So, and we have a new president, uh, Jeff Eshelman. Uh, I think you know Jeff. Jeff is our CEO, uh, our president. Uh, former president who was there for a long time has moved on. So we've got a new face, new, fresh, new ideas coming in, and we're really excited about it. Oh, cool. The, it's interesting. So this is kind of wild coincidence. The podcast I dropped this morning is about Rock Spring, Wyoming. Oh, yeah. Uh, J.J. Anselmi. I have trouble with his last name. As you can tell, I can't get Dan and Don right. <laughs> so a last name of Anselmi is uh, tough. But he wrote a book called Out Here on Our Own. And it's an oral history of Rock Spring and kind of the boom bust cycle and oh really and sort of the you know the the traits of an extraction community if you will it's a it's a good book that's fascinating I I, I don't know about it but I'll I'll look it out I'll check it out because it it's Wyoming is where I really cut my teeth on all these issues not only energy issues but uh, it's a great state I love Wyoming I love the people of Wyoming. And the Rock Springs, it the the name implies what uh, there's a lot of mining, a lot of activity out there, and uh, and uh, again, boom and bust. Um, 
and that's a challenge that we face. Uh, again, our members face, uh, you know, every day. And that's, that's why it's a pleasure to represent them because it really is when I talk about wildcatting, that's what our guys do. They get out there and, and they have ideas. Uh, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. But the, the issue is for all of us, I had one of our members say early on when I was at IPAA, I, I, I understand there's going to be business issues and I may make a mistake. I'm not proud of that on the business side, but what I don't want is the federal government to put me out of business. And that's a challenge I think we face right now is uh, from the regulatory side, from congressional side. And so all those issues are really important uh, every day for our members. And I, and I want to get to that, but just real quick, backtrack one thing, because this I, I managed five campaigns for state rep when I was an undergrad at Rice. Oh, wow. Did you start campaign and that's how you wound up getting uh, the congressional uh, staff position? I did. I did not. Well, I started campaigning. Uh, I did campaigns. I uh, went to school in Colorado and uh, started local campaigns there, actually a city council campaign. I didn't manage it, but I worked it. Right. And then uh, then just was actually dumb enough to just go out to Washington without a job. <laughs> and and, and I that. started I found at first I was working, you know, running documents for a law firm. But pretty soon I got a job on Capitol Hill. But again, that sounds sexier than it is. It was uh, know, ans answering phones yeah. and uh, answering phones and uh, and uh, doing White House tours so, and Capitol tours. I'm going to put you on the spot. You're going to have to give me a crazy campaign story, but I'll go first just because I don't want to put you on the spot. So I was managing a campaign for state rep for a guy named Mike Shelby, former U.S. attorney. And it literally was one of the most amazing Republican primaries for state rep because you had three really high quality candidates. You had Mike Shelby, U.S. attorney, you had Kyle Janik, who was actually an anesthesiologist. And then you had Tim Turner, who was a landman in the oil and gas business. Very smart, all this sort of stuff. So it was going to be a tough race. So, And we didn't have much in the way of money because he was a former U.S. attorney, but he hated to ask for money. So we didn't have much. We are on a budget. So I'm out one night with a, uh, I'll say it this way, a former DEA agent. And we're putting up yard signs for Mike Shelby. And this DA agent might be slightly unpolished, and he decides, you know, those Janik signs, we need to take them down. So he's ripping down the Janik signs everywhere, throwing them in the back of the truck. And anyway, so we get done that night, and it's about midnight, and I go, man, this is just going to be bad. Um, so what I did, the first time I've ever fessed up to this on the air, by the way, and Tim Turner may watch the – I took Tim Turner's signs and went and put them where the Janik signs oh. used to be. <laughs> And uh, the next day, just all hell is breaking loose, right? right? I mean, Tim and Kyle are both calling Mike Shelby going, can you believe what that guy's doing? He yanked up my signs. He put his signs there. And Mike's just, please leave me out of this. I didn't have anything to do with oh, this. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Very devious of me. So you got, you got one campaign story? Well, you know, again, it was, I think it's always those local races. Uh, the, the biggest campaign story I have is, is two. So it was in Colorado Springs, which is a fairly conservative area. I was working for a Republican, but um, it was supposed to be nonpartisan. Um, so the what happens during the race is they, um, th they basically turn it into a partisan race, and it was a huge challenge. So then all of a sudden you're going door to door and people slamming the door and in your face, you know, they didn't want to talk to you. But probably the biggest thing is, and, and it was good. It was a good experience. We, we lose this uh, race. And I talked to the candidate who is a businessman. He's got other things to do. And he, he brought me back. I'm a college kid. And I said, you know, this is just awful. I don't think democracy works. The whole system's. And he said to me, Dan, get a grip. Uh, it's, it's a city council race in Colorado Springs. I was ready to to move to, you know, uh, the end of the earth and get away from it. So with that, I saw, OK, that's the way politics is. And, and I understand that. So. Well, that's actually good. I mean, my favorite politician of all time was Cincinnatus, the Roman emperor who's out tilling the fields. The invasion's coming. They make him emperor. He fights off the invasion. And 18 days later, he's tilling the fields. Right. You know, there's something uh, there's right. something to that. So. Yeah. Let's jump into D.C. What's going on there? Um, let me lay this out maybe as a premise and you can opine on it is it felt like circa call it 2000. Um, George Bush is elected president. We can, I'm not talking politics here, but you could say arguably maybe our most conservative president. Some would say no, but whatever. Mm -hmm. 
and you have the shale revolution happen and it felt like the deal was hey we're gonna let the states deal with this stuff you know yeah there was a little bit of epa stuff but for the most part fracking shale revolution all that we're gonna let the states deal with it and that would be typical of a conservative republican then you have Obama get elected, 2008, and we could say maybe our most liberal president, again, not opining on politics, but just, and at that point, it felt like energy was so much a part of the economy, you know, 15, 20% of the S&P 500, union jobs, economic growth, that, yeah, there was a little bit more activity out of the EPA, but it generally felt like the deal was still hey, the states are going to deal with this kind of hands off from D.C. It doesn't feel that way anymore. Am I am I reading that right? Am I, is no. that some revisionist history or? No, I don't think it's revisionist history at all. And, and, and I, again, having been there at IAA for 20 years, I've seen this. Um, I think it is it is really true that. Uh, the view um, and, and so much of it revolves around climate change <clears throat> and, um, you know, how the federal government's going to address that issue. And I want to stress, Chuck, um, we understand the importance of climate change. We understand trying to get this right. But we also understand that you need an energy policy that looks at all forms of energy, um, oil and gas, uh, coal, uh, renewables. Um, and so we're going to continue to talk about that. But the issue, I think, the frustration for our members is, I think you're on to something that, um, you know, heavy involvement from Washington now at every level. Um, and again, it's not just Department of Interior. It's not just um, the folks dealing with offshore. It's not just the EPA. Um, we're now dealing with the, the uh, SEC is putting out regulations that are going to uh, get involved in oil and gas regulation all around climate. You even roll over to the DOD. Um, there, what's the climate aspect of Department of Defense? Um, and so you see this kind of rattling through everything. And unfortunately, in my opinion, the long arm of the federal government is getting into um, issues where they really uh, uh, don't have the expertise. One of the things we talk about so much, I, I mentioned that we're a federal trade association, association but we work very closely with the states and um, that's where the real diamond, you know, dynamic nature of what goes on. And the states know better. Um, Texas is different than Wyoming, is different than California, is different than West Virginia or Ohio. Um, and so you need to have some overarching regulations, no doubt about that. But we believe the best way to do it is to let the states do that work in conjunction, uh, is certainly in the EPA realm. Um, but that's not happening. You're seeing more and more um, uh, intrusion, I think, from the federal government. The last thing I'll say, Chuck, is just quickly that the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, um, is a law that was supposed to design to be major federal actions. Um, you're seeing now NEPA applied across the board, not only in oil and gas, but in transportation, highway, any kind of building activity. And they're getting, uh, they just came out with some more uh, regulations focused on climate and how Climate decisions must be made a part of this process, which we just don't believe was ever uh, really intended. Yeah, because this is a take I have that I really need to give credit to Mark Meyer, who who does BD, the BDE show with me, because it's really more his take. But it felt like historically there was always reach from the federal government, but it was a reach with an objective mm -hmm. and they let the market sort it out. Hey, we want lower emissions. Y'all go figure it out. And it felt like with the IRA, they came in and said, you know, we're not going to say we want lower emissions from cars and maybe natural gas-based gasoline can do it. We'll let the market. They came in and said, we're going all out EV. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is the prescription. Go deal with it. And so it feels like, you know, we've always kind of had government overreach, but now they are dictating solutions to us. And that that's kind of the thing me, the libertarian, gets scared by, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, no, I think it's, a, again, uh, a, a really important issue that we need to look at um, because that's uh, so often uh, uh, the EPA in the past has, again, to, to more degree, to less degree, but worked in partnership with the states. Now you're seeing that partnership um, really come from the federal side, and, and that's not much of a partnership anymore. And that's the other issue. <clears throat> Again, having worked in Congress for a long time, always dangerous when uh, laws are written, actual laws mandating 
who's going to win, who's going to lose. Um, and that's the concern here. And the other issue, again, uh, we just want fair and open competition. Again, we, we strongly believe natural gas, um, oil, the shale revolution has uh, provided this country with a huge uh, opportunity um, that we need to continue to work on. And again, I, I'm repeating myself, but uh, it doesn't mean they're the only answer, but they can't be excluded. And that's the frustration I think we have with the Biden administration is that the goal here is to make it very difficult for American producers to produce oil and natural gas, which has not only ramifications for our country, but the world, as you're seeing uh, in Ukraine and Europe. Um, you know, thank God we have what we have and uh, going to continue to need to do that. Yeah, I've always I've said it a million times on the podcast, but just Bad crap happens when you buy energy from authoritarian dictators, war, embargoes, just everything. And um, is let me say this as a statement, and you opine because this is you know I sit here in Houston, Texas, and am unemployed, and you know I'm lucky when I get out of bed by ten in the morning. So you know take this with a grain of salt, but it feels to me if we truly wanted to get rid of carbon. I mean, if that was the true goal, then we ought to be willing to engage in a discussion on that where all sides kind of come together to navigate that. And it feels like the other side is just no, we're getting rid of oil and gas, period. So I have a theory on why that I'll share with you in just a second. But is that true? I mean, is that you kind of alluded to it with the Biden administration there? Yeah. You know, I mean, again, um, there's been discussion of a carbon tax um, doing something along those lines. IPAA has not supported that for this reason. One of the issues is the uh, the opponents of oil and gas will say, sure, we'll do a carbon tax. But we also want all these regulations to, to stay in. I mean, you know, if you if you could do a a blank slate and and decide, you know, you maybe could have a discussion about that, but that's not what's happening. And instead, um, it is, it very much feels like this to us as well, that, uh, you know, there's just this singular focus on oil and gas at this point. Um, and, and as I said, that's rattling through so many, so many um, new uh, regulatory agencies that uh, it's a real challenge because, uh, you know, there's only so many of us. You get into areas that the, the other challenge we have is you have people who don't understand the industry. Um, it's a very complicated industry. And I'm not saying I understand it, but you, you talk about your family, my family. I was we are one of the things I should also say about IPAA. We're strictly the upstream. So our our guys just produce. But then when I'm talking to my family, they say, well, how do you get it out? Well, that's a pipelines. That's a different group. And then you had to do retail. And at some point, my brother finally just says, out of heck with it. I'm just paying too much for gas- <laughs> gasoline, <laughs> right. right? Right. So it's a complicated um, uh, patchwork of, of different. But if you, um, you know, make it so difficult for our guys to produce and then move it out from these remote areas, um, it, it just starts to stack up. And at some point, that's going to be a problem for all of us. Yeah. So I had an interesting discussion because I've always kind of taken the tact of, you know, we need to police our own. So mm-hmm. I'll be on the podcast and I'll call out bad actors mm-hmm. as I see them. And I get grief from the industry for that. And I'm, look, you know, I'm oil and gas, loud and proud, you know, all that good stuff. But I do think, and I say this time and time again, I say, Hey, if we don't police our own, guess what? Washington, D.C. will do it. And I've never had a pleasant experience with Washington, yeah. D.C. outside this one restaurant I ate at there. But <laughs> um, and I saw a Nationals game. Oh, uh, there you go. <laughs> so uh, Anthony Rendon, who used to play uh, for the Nationals, he went to Rice. And uh, anyways, a friend of mine. And so he hosted us for a game. That was oh, right. wow. That one, was very pleasant. One of my favorite players. Now he went to the Angels. I know. Yeah, I know. So. Great guy. I mean, is that just, right? Yeah, just unbelievable. Oh, I, unbelievable. Honestly, great. one of my favorite players. And so, anyways, I'm sorry. Oh, well, no, here's, here's my uh, Anthony Rendon story. So, I go to Rice, right? And the athletic director, who's now the athletic director at University of Texas, was the athletic director at Rice, Crystal Conte. He calls me, Chuck, tomorrow's the end of the fiscal year. Athletic department hadn't made their budget. I need a contribution. And I go, okay, Chris, here's my deal. You say a number, and I'm going to say yes or no. So don't ask for too much, because I may say no, 
but you know, put your best foot forward one bite at this. And Chris throws out a number and I go, okay, Chris, I'll do that. But what you have to do is you have to make Anthony Rendon my scholar athlete. Cause I, I have a scholarship over there with my ex-wife and, oh, wow. and they always assign you a player, uh-huh. you know? So I say, you got to make Anthony. And he goes, done, Chuck. That's great. And the, the key to that is you get to go have dinner with the athlete, you know? So anyway, about two weeks later, I'm at dinner with Anthony Rendon and we're sitting there talking. He's a great guy and, and, and all this. And about, you know, two thirds of the way through dinner, Rendon just says, yeah, I don't know. This is the 12th dinner that Del Conte's had me do in the last two weeks. <laughs> so I called, I called Del Conte the next morning. Well played. And he goes, yeah, yeah. Rendon's like 14 people scholar athlete this year. I'm like, well played. Yeah. You're doing the Lord's work, but no. Um, so where I, where I was going with this is, so I, I kind of, I'll call out the industry sure. and, I got uh, had a reach out from a I'll say a prominent environmentalist environmentalist lobbyist mm-hmm. and just the reach out was hey can we talk and the talk was kind of hey I don't want people to know we're talking and all that but you seem like a reasonable guy can we talk and I was like hey I'm getting in my car tomorrow and driving to Santa Fe New Mexico I'm on the road for 12 hours knock yourself out and we wound up talking for about three or four hours and delightful person great and all that. One of the things that came out of that talk that I didn't appreciate, uh, the person said, you know, it's not actually the burning of the hydrocarbons because at the end of the day, I couldn't deal with my children without my SUV. So I get it. I get there's a need. The fundamental problem we have is we just don't trust Mm y'all. So our hyperbole might be a little out there. We might draw the line at hurting you guys instead of how do we find it? And it's because we don't trust you. We feel like, you know, Exxon hid climate warming and stuff. Right. And I hadn't really thought of that. And so, I, you know, there may be some truth to that. Because I, I will say we haven't been the best actors. I mean. So one of the things, again, we always say, first of all, you need to be uh, good actors. Uh, you need to comply with the law. Um, both at state and federal level, our members. In addition, we talk about being good neighbors. Um, And one of the things that I love about our members, a lot of times they live in the states, they live and are operating only in those states where they, they, they work. And so you know, it's their home. It's, it's what they do. You talk about Wyoming. You got families that live in Wyoming. They understand that. They're not going to do things that are going to, number one, um, ruin the environment in Wyoming. And second of all, they know those people. They know that they've lived there. They understand when companies, they can see them. It's not a company that comes in and leaves. So we have to do that. Look, we always have to have good actors because I get that. I understand. Um, uh, nobody, no industry is perfect, but we always have to stress to be good neighbors. And it happens a lot of times too, when you're talking about split estates, which is, uh, you know, it really gets involved in the federal state, um, federal lands. But, um, you know, you need to be able, there's places where it's private property and federal minerals underneath. Well, you can't, even if the lease says you can go on there and produce, you got to work with the landowners. You have to, you have to be a good neighbor and do it right. And the companies that do survive, those that don't, um, are going to have trouble. And, uh, and so we need to continue that dialogue. One of the things um, we worked on uh, at IPAA is an orphan well bill. Um, uh, and we had a lot of our members say, why are you getting involved in that? Well, it was important. Um, wells that had been abandoned. Uh, and we worked with the environmental community. We worked with Democrats in Congress. Um, we got uh, uh, additional dollars. Now, that's always that give and take. Some people said, yeah, this is, you know, this is a challenge for us. But it's important to do that. And so we're going to continue to talk about that. And, uh, and, and we want to have that dialogue. Unfortunately, and we're probably not perfect on this, Chuck, you get into Washington. One of the things I think has changed since I've been in Washington is now there's just two camps. Um, and so I, I commend you for having a conversation uh, as you're driving to Santa Fe, New Mexico. But it's important to have that dialogue. We want to have that dialogue. But we find um, so often the environmental community doesn't want to talk to us because then just what the guy said, I don't want to publicize this. I don't want people to know we're right. working with you. So we, we've got it. We've got our, uh, our work cut out for us, but uh, you know, I'm very confident in, in our members and, and the way they are good neighbors uh, in, in the States around. Cause 
my political leanings are very much a libertarian. I mean, I read Free to Choose by Milton Friedman early on, kind of changed my life. I actually made it through John Galt's whole speech. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know? wow. Wow. I mean, I made it through the whole, it was painful. It took a long time, but I, I made it through the whole speech. Uh, God bless Rand on that one. But so I've been very much the libertarian. And despite the fact that I, I, I actually believe a lot of my beliefs are moral in nature. I mean, I truly believe markets punish bad behavior worse than governments promoting good behavior does, et cetera. I will say this, and this is why I've never been involved in politics and will never. I actually think you have to have consensus so that everybody buys in. So I may believe X, you believe Y. It's more important for us to agree to Z mm -hmm. than it is for me to get, get on Y. Yep. You know, just because yep. if we don't all buy into the system, it doesn't hold up. And that's my worry about the 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 two party thing. And, you know, it goes back to George Washington's sure. uh, farewell address, avoid factions, because, I mean, half the world doesn't believe the other half. So when, yeah. you know, 2016 was Russian interference in our election and 2020 was, you know, a fraudulent election and it's. We didn't really change much in between, guys. So, you yeah. know, yeah. No, we're always, um, uh, first of all, I agree. Again, we talked about Washington and, and it's a challenge. I, I talked to my kids about this. There used to be, I think, more dialogue between the parties, um, discussion of trying to, and, and I will also say this, uh, the vast majority, I understand, again, I come from a big family and most of them are in Colorado and say, I couldn't, I hate Washington. I don't want to be there. The vast majority of people, Republican and Democrat, come to Congress, come there to do the right thing, represent their constituents. But anymore, you get into this issue of it's not just that you have a political difference, that it's good and evil. Um, and anytime you're talking about good and evil, that's a really dangerous, um, dangerous spot to be. Um, so, you know, we do need to come to, together in cons on consensus. We do need to find answers. And, and uh, speaking as a trade association, one of the things our leadership always talks about is reaching out to both sides, Democrats, Republicans. Um, we want to get out there. Are we perfect at it? No. But um, we hope that there can be a dialogue. That's why we're always talking about energy policy rather than even oil and natural gas. We represent oil and natural gas producers, but you're going to have to have a uh, a thoughtful approach to how the country is going to move from here to there. And uh, we think oil and natural gas are going to be a, a key part of that for many years to come. I mean, I always say that energy is so important <clears throat> that bad energy policy either way leads to deaths. Yeah. I mean, too expensive energy, bad, you know, not looking after the environment, bad. So, um, to that end, one of the things I found, and kind of stick with me on this, but it's really true if you go do this. If you pull up BLM websites, listen to the rhetoric, if you pull up QAnon and stuff, if you took the names off, you almost can't tell a difference between difference, the rhetoric. Right. And it all comes from this, and I'm not justifying mm -hmm. either side, I'm not defending it, but it all comes from this they're just disassociated from the American dream. Right. They they feel like America's passed them by and they're looking for someone to blame on it. And maybe they're rightful people to blame on it. But it, that that's why I always say we really aren't that different. You know, if we could just somehow get rid of the narrative that the only way to show that you care about something is a big government program. I think we could have a lot more healthy discussions because I don't mind somebody saying, yeah, you're an idiot. Markets won't fix that. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. I hate when somebody says, well, you're anti that because you don't want a big government program. And yeah. so I think, I think energy needs to be at the forefront of that because it really is important. Because if we can transition on 5 trillion instead of 50 trillion, imagine what we could do with that 45 trillion mm -hmm. instead of wasting it. It just feels like we're wasting it. Well, Again, I, you know, energy is so important. <clears throat> and you, you saw it here in Texas um, when uh, during the storms two years ago, you know, I mean, it impacts so much of everybody's life. And again, we believe one of the things is you also look at what our members do. Um, when you're talking about production, it's not just at the wellhead. It also helps communities. It also helps 
uh, state budgets. It helps jobs, economy. Obviously, one of the things, again, that uh, our members really want to do, you know, I think is is you, it, it is really the American dream. Um, you can have, my nephew works in the, doesn't have a college degree, went into the field um, at 18. He is now a, a field manager making probably more than I am. Um, <laughs> uh, but that's good. That's great. That's what you want. And so, you know, it, it really is an industry that's so dynamic if you will let it be dynamic. And if you have, unfortunately, as you said, if you have the long arm of the federal government getting involved. And again, I want to stress check, Chuck, and I know you're saying the same thing. There are baseline, you've got to protect the environment. You've got to be careful when you're talking about methane or, um, you know, how you're going to do all these things, but we can do it. The industry can do it. The industry's shown it can do it. The um, one of my favorite things is the footprints um, that, that uh, hydraulic fracturing has the size of well pads have just gotten smaller and smaller. And now we used to have to have 10, one spot you can go 10 times. The impact on the environment's just gotten smaller that way. And it's going to continue. These guys, uh, our members, small members are amazing at finding innovative solutions. And so, um, of course, you need to work with your federal regulators. You need to work with your state regulators. But uh, we think there's a much better way to do it than uh, a, uh, you know, just a, a heavy hand of saying, no, you can't do it anymore. That, that I believe, is a real danger for the country because um, you don't have a solution. You take oil and gas out of the picture. You say, OK, where are you going to go next? And I've had some friends in Washington, environmental friends, say, well, we don't have that answer. We just don't want you there and we'll figure it out later. And I said, man, you're, you're playing... You're playing, uh, you know, rolling the dice with the economy at that point. That's I don't think we have to do that. Yeah. The okay. So we're six months into your administration. Uh, what are the things you want to accomplish? What's kind of on your wish list of you know top two or three things? Yeah, I think uh, so. I think really the the our goal number one. Uh, you know, we went through through some tough times. The pandemic was hard on the industry, uh, hard on small producers. So as a trade Poster association, boy. yeah, I got it. <laughs> it really is. So, um, you know, that's one of our goals to have a healthy, dynamic uh, voice for independent producers in Washington is, is the first thing. We're well on our way to doing that. Second of all, uh, we do want to work on, um, you know, bringing some smart policies. And I think we're, again, talking in a bipartisan fashion to to uh, policymakers to make sure you don't um, uh makes decisions that will uh, are probably a little dramatic to say, but are irreversible. Um, you make decisions, policy decisions that drive small producers out. Um, that's a mistake for so many different issues. And this is not taking a shot at the major producers. Uh, it's, it's such a dynamic industry. Um, independent producers push the majors to do better, to do different things. The majors obviously have a worldwide scope. Um, but if you don't have that independent industry, for example, in the offshore, um, if you don't have independent operators operating in the offshore, that causes uh, a ripple effect that isn't good for anything. You talk about Milton Freeman, you talk about markets, you talk about dynamic markets. That's one where the independent producers are really key to that. So we want to make sure that uh, that voice is still heard. Um, because I think one of the goals of the detractors of oil and gas industry, they know that. So they say, we want to take out what they call the low-hanging fruit, the smaller operators. Okay, marginal wells, we don't need those. We don't need this, that, and the other. But if you look at it cumulatively, it has a huge impact. So that's our goal is to continue to make sure we have a voice uh, and a place at the table for our members. You know, it's really interesting to, to back up your point. When, you know, so George Mitchell goes and figures out how to frack the Barnett. We have the revolution in natural gas. I remember in 2008 drilling a horizontal well, and it was an oil well, and that was like the kiss of death. Oh, my God, 1,000 barrels a day, but two days later it'll be. But eventually we figure out the technology so that we can apply modern fracks to the oil business, and lo and behold, we're off to the races. If you look at the initial production rates from wells, and we'll just say the Permian Basin, but whatever, you know, they're up. 30, 40% each year going 2014, you know, on and on and on. And they're up in kind of 17 and 18, 20%. What was really interesting about that data is if you took out Exxon and Chevron wells 
in the Permian Basin, and and I may be off a year or two, mm-hmm. but 2017, 2018, actually the wells plateaued. And the whole point is all of that growth and development you saw was not Exxon and Chevron developing it. It was your guys. Yeah. Right. I mean, they were the ones out there tinkering because it was it was an engineer's playground because there was no i mean i love engineers although you know what one of my favorite jokes is there was an engineering uh railroad bubble in the england in the 1850s at one point someone calculated that all of the railroads laid in england for all those projects to get their money back everyone on that island had to ride a railroad 22 hours a day. <laughs> so there was this big, huge bubble. And one of the Rothschilds is reported as saying, there are three paths to ruin. Wine, women, and engineers. <laughs> the first two are more fun. The last one, the most certain. So I, I, I kid engineers I love. But no, I mean, there was a ton of, I mean, like the original thesis on fracking was you take a big chunk of sand and you cut a path through the rock, right? Mm -hmm. Well, 100 mesh, which is basically talcum powder, wound up working a lot better. And that was an engineer going, hey, let's try this, see what happens. We'll measure. Okay, we'll try this again. And so a lot of that work was done by your guys and not not the big guys. They, they, They stole, which is fine, you know. But Well, I don't, I, again, I, I just want to stress, you know, again, uh, independent producers have the ability to do a lot of different things and look at different issues. Again, it's a, the industry's dynamic. And so we need the majors. We need, we need all of these, um, uh, companies coming together and it's very exciting for the United States. I think that's the other frustration is at a time when we should really be celebrating uh, the, the the renaissance, the revolution, and not stand, sitting on our heels, continuing to move forward, um, you now get into the fights of people just trying to, 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 to uh, run you out of business. And that's, again, we can talk, you know, we could talk for hours, but that's uh, talk to Europe about what's going on. Um, you know, um, you need a, a stable energy system. And uh, we're blessed in the United States to have uh, oil and natural gas um, and the ability to get it out and to move it. And that's good for everybody. I always say it's important to have the United States as an energy superpower just to level those markets uh, across the world. And you talked about it earlier, rather than going out, unfortunately, the president did it um, to Venezuela, to, to unstable actors. We have it right here let's figure that out and it, and let's answer some of those questions. Let's not do away with it. So that's our thought. That's my thought. Well, and, and Saudi Aramco is actually a very well run company, but just given the nature of the oil they produce, it is dirtier than sweet uh, crude coming out of West Texas. Sure. It, it just is. And so the thought that we're still going to use gasoline and all the products from crude and we'll take it from there, but we won't take it from West Texas. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's That's still not my biggest beef. My biggest energy beef is we actually import LNG in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is LNG that could help Europe in their fight against Putin. You know, we, we've taken Russian LNG in the past, but it wasn't that much. Basically, we're taking it from Trinidad, right? Right. And we could be sending that to Europe, helping out Europe. Instead, we are importing LNG there. And how far is Massachusetts from the largest gas field in the United States? I mean, the Appalachia. I bet right. I bet Toby Rice could build a pipeline to, to Massachusetts if we want. And you say, okay, well, we don't want pipelines. They're dirty. They leak, all that. That's great. Well, unfortunately, given the dynamics... We've had days this winter where 35% of the heating in Massachusetts is done by uh, heating oil. Mm -hmm. And that's dirty, nasty stuff. I'm not trying to throw a stone at heating oil, but at the end of the day. So it's stuff like that that you just wish you could sit there and talk, okay, can we at least build one pipeline there? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, you know, again, and this is electric vehicles. Um, at, at I have a, a good friend who who is very proud, owns a Tesla. But the issue that comes in is um, he's plugging that in at night um, from the utility in the D.C. area, which is either has coal or natural gas power fired. Right. right. So 
that may make you feel good. And I'm not taking a shot at Tesla. It's a beautiful car. He took yeah. me a ride. But that's not solving th- that this issue, if that's what you want to do, is you're just making yourself feel good. It reminded me of Massachusetts again. Um, you say, well, we don't want the pipes because we don't want to do it. But you're then bringing in LNG tankers into Boston Harbor from Russia, from Trinidad, from elsewhere. There's better answers to that. So that's, again, I sound like a broken record, but that's where you need to have an energy policy, a coherent policy of thinking this through. And that's a challenge, I think, that that we all face still. Yeah. So what's something that members of the audience could do to help on that front? Make your Make your life easier. Do you kind of have a wish list for folks? Well, you know, again, we deal with with our members a lot, but I think for members of the audience, uh, understand that these decisions that are and, being- And actually the audience is mostly oil and gas well, folks, except for the big environmentalist. Uh, <laughs> he or she claims to watch periodically. Well, that's good because it would be the same issue, which is um, to always watch when, when there's um, regulatory actions that- that are happening. And I, I know this sounds like it's inside baseball, but you're talking about the SEC getting involved in regulating oil and natural gas. You're talking about those things aren't, they'd come with a cost. And so um, I'm not saying you have to read the trade press and look through and see the oil and gas companies will, but ask questions of policymakers. What, how, how are ask members of your members of Congress, uh, Republicans and Democrats, what is your solution um, to solve this issue? Um, and, and I will tell you, Chuck, our answer is never drill, baby, drill. Um, that, that gets to the other side where it's, you know, that, 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 that's nothing we've talked about, but have a smart policy because unfortunately, I think many of the environmentalists and those on the left, there isn't an answer. Um, it is simply, we don't want you to operate and we'll deal with the other issues later. And you talked about that. You're then talking about people's lives not my livelihood, but you're talking about people living, surviving. Um, you need to have a stable energy source uh, to do everything that we do. And uh, and sometimes I don't think those solutions are thought through. It's just simply, I don't want you. I right. don't want that. And that gets to be a really uh, dangerous proposition for the country. If I could be so bold to add to that one suggestion is, I think you're right. Hey, question your policymakers why. A great question I've found that might be slightly more effective is ask what the second order effects are. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, if we do this, are we going to do that? And and one, real quick, you, you figure out whether your policymaker actually understands the issue. But uh, one of the things I've done since sitting in the seat the last couple of years is I've spent a lot of time studying the psychological research on how you ch- how you change someone's mind. And what's interesting about that is there are basically three ways that are deemed effective. One is just ask questions. That's why the Socratic method is such an effective teaching method because you're not you're not denying anyone's position. You're just saying, "Okay, well what about this?" You know, so that's effective. Two, you can just scare people. I think that's morally wrong. I don't right. think you should do sure. that. I mean, that that should be off the table. Three, you can make the people laugh. And the key to that is you're making them laugh, not yourself laugh. Because I think we fall in the energy business. We make ourselves laugh all the time. It's the (laughs) echo chamber. What is actually the least effective way of changing someone's mind is with reason and facts. Because you're basically not accepting their premise and you've already started with a a, uh, fight on that front. And so... No, you know, I think uh, I, I, it's a great, that's a great addition to what I was saying. I mean, I think you have to do that. What's the secondary effect? What happens? One of the things I talk a lot about, we talked about President Obama, um, and and I give him credit from the public, I mean, from the selling this, um, he was really good at saying, um, basically, you know, snap your fingers and you're going to be able to move from oil, and natural gas to renewables. There's going to be no pain. There's going to be no, it'll just, and I often, again, tell people, well, who wouldn't 
okay, that makes sense. If that's easy, you just snap your I've fingers. Said, and I've said the single most effective thing the environmental movement has done from them, their side is they've convinced people of that fact. Yeah. That renewables could replace it, if not for big bad oil companies. Yeah. And so, again, <laughs> uh, you know, that's, that's the challenge is if that's the thought. And so you get into there, any energy is going to have uh, uh, energy producing is going to have side effects. You've got to deal with that. What are you going to do in our world? How are you going to address methane? How are you going to address a lot of issues? But in the renewable side, you know, you get into rare earth minerals and what are you going to do about batteries and what are you going to do about uh, windmills? Slave labor in China building it. So there's always, you know, it's not just an easy, if it were easy, it'd be done. Um, It That's just the way it is. And so Again, uh, we just want to be part of that conversation and have a discussion because we think it's vital that the United States continue to have a dynamic oil and natural gas industry. It's it's always one of those crazy things that oil and gas companies are so incredibly greedy and all they want is money, but renewables are so much cheaper. Why aren't they just doing that? Yeah. You know, it's always, you get the perplexed look and. You know, it's a really good point. Yeah, your your yeah. question of the follow-on is exactly that's yeah. what I'm talking about. It's as just well. kind of, you know, what's and, and you can be pleasant when you ask mm-hmm. the second level yeah. of uh, facts. But uh well, cool. How do people reach y'all? So we uh, the easiest way is our website, which is uh www.ipaa.org. Um go there, you can see we have a ton of information. We also IPAA heads up a uh, education um uh, communications thing called Energy in Depth. And it's, again, www.energyindepth.org. There's a ton of information on there that I would encourage your listeners to go look uh, look at because it talks about the real data of what's happening, the impact on people's lives, and, uh, you know, what what's being done at the federal level. Um, some good, some bad, you know, how, so we're happy to do that again. Um, always, uh, feel free to, to reach out to us cause we're happy to, to, um, answer any questions and really appreciate your uh, giving us the opportunity to have a chat today. Sure. The, uh, I've, I've got one story I'll, I'll kind of end with cause I find this interesting. I hope our website works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's not, yeah, I'm sorry. Go yeah, ahead. Exactly. The, so uh, this is interesting because, you know, my three kids have lived the greatest life of any three kids on the planet. I want to come back as one of my kids. <laughs> right. And uh, anyway, if you ask them tomorrow, hey, would you get rid of hydrocarbons? Oh, yeah, dad. You know, and my joke is always, hey, I know how you can do that. And they go, how? I go, just stop using it. If you stop using it, they'll all go out of business. But anyway, um, so we I have a tendency to think we as an industry are way more defeated than we actually are. And here's my here's my proof about that. I opened a series of just Zoom rooms this summer and said, hey, if you're young and you went into energy, come get on the Zoom call. If you didn't go into energy, come get on the Zoom call. And let's just chat. We're not recording anything. This isn't a podcast. I'm just curious. And so I did about 10 of those. And I probably all told had a hundred people that were chatting. And I heard one story that I think bears repeating because it's really good stuff. So I had a, call it a 24 year old engineer from Canada. And the engineer came on and said, you know what? Let me tell you my story. When I was at university, my freshman, sophomore and junior year, I went to a presentation by a large oil and gas company. It was entitled producing oil and gas. And it was an old white guy that came and talked about it. About 10 people showed up for the presentation. By the time it was done, three people were left and all. My senior year, they sent a 27-year-old engineer who grew up in India. And the presentation was entitled, Utilizing AI to Image the Subsurface. 200 people show up to it. By the end of his talk, there were 400 people in the room because everybody's texting their friends to get over here. The guy's opening line of the talk was something to the effect of, holy shit, I've never talked to this many people before. And he's running around. He's just bouncing around. And where in previous years, freshman, sophomore, and junior year, that large independent maybe hired one engineer, they wind up hiring 12 engineers from that year's class. And so I just kind of tell that story because – if anybody's watching and they're thinking we're defeated and we've lost the battle, 
it doesn't take a whole lot of marketing pizzazz to be able to talk to people and engage on them because they're not that far gone. No, I think it's <clears throat> it's one of the things we always talk about is the incredible technology um, uh, that is out there. And, you know, and, and look, we have to do that. We got to get young people involved. I, I, I have two kids who have they understand what I do. They understand what uh, pays the bills. And um, but it's this constant drumbeat of you want to get out of that. You want to get out of that. Want to get out of that. So, um, uh, you know, it, the technology is amazing. The industry is amazing. But we got to do a better job of telling the story. And we need uh, we also, uh, you know, the diversity, um, always looking for ways to do that, bringing more females in, uh, uh, addressing a lot of those issues because uh, it's it's a great industry. It's an important industry. And I think that's the key. It's an important industry um, that can really benefit not only uh, your life, but other people's lives as well. But we got to do a better job of telling the story. If we end up, I always say, and I'm dating myself, but if it becomes Jed Clampus shooting at crude um, that comes <laughs> bubbling up, you've got a problem. Um, if you can have a conversation about a whole variety of issues in a in a reasonable manner uh, and talk about the modern technology. I talked about reducing the footprint um, in states like Wyoming. That's huge. Um, that's exciting. And that's what we need to do is uh, continue to talk about the exciting nature of, of what the, the industry that we represent at IPAA. Because quite frankly, that knowledge base in the energy business, one, if we're going to scale anything and transition renewables, et cetera, you got to look to the energy industry. Absolutely. Because they've done it, number one. Number two, the the scaling down and taking care of the environment and the smaller footprint, mining's going to have to do that because we're going to need rare earth minerals mm -hmm. uh, to, to do all this. I, we talked yesterday on the BDE show, one-fifth of China's land is actually polluted because mm -hmm. of mining. Wow. So. So we, we are going to have to all engage on in this discussion. And hopefully the war with Ukraine, miserable, horrible, don't want to defend it, but at least hopefully it's put into the into the, into the spotlight that, hey, guys, we got to be thoughtful on this. We have to be thoughtful. Uh, and I, we couldn't agree more. The, the, you know, the, the war is awful, um, but it, does it shows you that th this is real world. This is what's happening. And if you don't have a thoughtful energy policy, don't think this through, you can get yourself into a, the, into a huge problem very quickly. Well said, Don. I'm kidding. <laughs> no worries. Dan, thanks for coming on. All right, Chuck. This thank you very great. much. Thank you.